0: The following episode of the Movie Club Podcast can and will contain spoilers. Please be aware of that before you listen. Thank you.
1: Hello, welcome to the Movie Club Podcast, episode number 25. 25. My name is Andrew James, and this is the sort of a book club format where we pick two movies, and then five, six, seven of us sit around the virtual table and discuss them, and we're all from different websites, different podcasts, different corners of the globe, as it were, and uh, so we'll be getting into the two movies this week are The Driver, directed by Walter Hill, and 52 Pickup from John Frankenheimer, Um, and I guess that's it, so what we should do here maybe is kinda go around the virtual table and introduce ourselves like I said my name is Andrew James and I am a podcaster and a contributor over at row3.com
2: and I'm uh, Bob Turnbull Uh, I also write at row3.com and also my personal blog eternal sunshine of the logical mind
3: and I'm Jandy Hardesty and I also write for row3 and uh, my personal site theframe.com
2: hello everybody
0: I'm Jim Lazkowski with the Directors Club Podcast over at directorsclubpodcast.com,
4: and I'm Kurt Halfyard from uh, Row Three and Twitch. Um, We definitely have a Row Three majority this time. This is kind of a little heavy, Mm -hmm. but it's it's an interesting way a to get a lot of people from the site that don't get a chance to talk to together, and uh, also the um, film junk guys have been doing a lot of. uh, like these sort of series podcasts or whatever. They they when I talk to them this time around, they're like, no 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 no. We got so many things going on in terms of Lord of the Rings and other and, and other things. Sean just had a baby as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm glad after what was it February that the, the last one we all managed to get together to finally talk about these two movies uh, here on twelve 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 day. Uh, even though these movies don't have any supernatural, apocalyptic, Mayan, end-of-the-world context whatsoever. Um, Instead, they're uh, united by good old-fashioned Los Angeles sleaze
1: and mm, sleaze and i should mention um that this is being recorded as sort of a video google hangout thing. Um there is the audio version that you'll be able to download so it'll be downloadable in audio video or you can stream the video version on youtube so lots of different ways to check this out um, i don't know how much the video feed will help viewers listeners but in theory it should help at least the five of us get some visual cues from each other and whatnot instead of... We tend to talk over one another um, sometimes when you can't see each other, so hopefully this will help in that regard. Um, The movie we decided to start with was uh, Walter Hill's The Driver. And I can't remember... Kurt, was this your suggestion for the pick this month? It it was, because if you position yourself back into February...
4: Um, Drive with Ryan Gosling, the Nicholas Winding Refn one, was just heating up as an Oscar-y kind of contender movie, um, and I assume that was the motivation. It's funny, um, if there's two directors we tend to like on this podcast, it's John Carpenter and Walter Hill, because I believe we did The Warriors already. Um, but... I guess there was a bit of selfishness in this in that uh, The Driver was one of the few Walter Hill movies I had never seen. So, um, yeah, that was where that came from.
1: Excellent. So I guess what how we usually start these things is just kind of go around the room one time, briefly mention your history or non-history with the film and initial impressions. Um, I guess so I'll start. Uh, the Driver, yeah, this was my first time seeing the film. I... Didn't even realize, really, that Drive was clearly influenced by it. So I'm watching the thing going, wow, this is a lot like Drive. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I hadn't seen it before, and I love Bruce, Bruce Dern. And I just recently watched Barry Lyndon, so that was kind of a treat to catch Ryan <laughs> O'Neill again. And uh, overall, I really I really like the movie. Um, we'll get into... Flaws and pros and cons later on, but in general, I I was really entertained.
2: Cool, it's funny you mention uh, Barry Lyndon. I just watched that for the first time recently as well. Uh, been trying to write about it, but it's a overly long uh, kind of movie to try and get your head around. Um, I've seen The Driver three times now. I own it, um, so when I saw a Drive for the first time last year, I was like, wait a second, this this looks vaguely familiar. Um, I like it more every time I see it, uh, and I'm really starting to. Get into Walter Hill's style of kind of intense direction, but without you know any kind of huge camera movement. He managed to build up a lot of really interesting tension by being very quiet. And I really, really liked about the driver. I think every time I see it, more and more.
3: This was uh, my first time seeing it. I had heard. Um, well, I saw Drive early. I actually saw it uh, last June at a film festival, and then again when it came out in theaters and loved it, so um, I'd heard kind of rumors that it was a lot like The Driver, and uh, so when Kurt mentioned that he'd picked this film for a movie club podcast, I was like, oh, I want to be on that one because I want to see that movie. Um, and yeah, I really enjoyed it too. Like, it, like Andrew was saying, it's immediately obvious from the first few frames the, the amount that Drive um, has stolen, basically, from The Driver. Um, but it still got kind of its own feel, and I, and I like that. I really enjoyed watching it.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty much in agreement with everyone. Um, when we did Walter Hill for the uh, Director's Club podcast, I had actually not seen the driver for that episode, and it's actually with uh, great regret, <laughs> simply because its I think it's gone on pretty much to be my uh, favorite Walter Hill film, and this is saying something. Since I adore The Warriors, uh, Southern Comfort, and Streets of Fire, I really like movies with protagonists that seem kind of out of sync with society in general, and they try to, like, implant their own rules and make their lives work despite all the complications that come with it. And it's just this really airtight action thriller that almost feels, like, effortless in its execution. And uh, I, I adore it. I think I, I've seen it. This is my second time seeing it within the past year and a half. And, um, yeah, I'm also a huge, huge fan of Drive. And both this film and I'd say Michael Mann's Thief were both huge inspirations for uh, Nicholas Winding Ruffin, and, and you can tell. And that's why it's actually kind of a joy to go back and rewatch this movie, uh, especially if you're a fan of Drive. So, agreed.
4: <laughs> this was my first time watching the movie. And the thing that struck me immediately on watching the movie is why isn't this movie mentioned in the same breath as bullet mm-hmm. and Ronin and the French connection in terms of like pure brilliantly executed car chases. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be curious to see how much we can actually dig into this movie. Cause the one thing that Walter Hill tends to do um, well outside of the warriors is make these, just pure genre films. And uh, I, I don't think there's any, like af- after a single viewing of the movie, I don't think that there's much that the driver has to say about anything. Like, it, it's just, it's a pure bit of escapist entertainment with great characters on screen. But I don't think there's, like when Andrew said no nonsense, uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, uh, the movie, uh, right there. It, it it gets in. It entertains for uh, you know an hour forty, and um, and then when you're done, it's done. That being said, I had a blast watching the movie. Particularly, Bruce Dern. Mm. I, I mean, he always loved that guy, and in this movie, he is at his most Dern ish. I, I feel that. I could feel, I could see all these other performances from him. This movie feels to me like the Bruce Stern Rosetta Stone movie. Like you get little bits of Silent Running, you get little bits of The Burbs, you get um, just I don't know. I just had a, a big flavor of of him uh, in the movie. I actually I think it's his movie to be honest because I don't think Ryan O'Neill says more than I don't know. It's debatable whether Arnold Schwarzenegger has more lines of dialogue in the original Terminator than Ryan <laughs> O'Neal has in this movie. He doesn't say much um, at all. And I don't know. For me, Ryan O'Neill is a bit of a wet blanket. So I didn't think much of his character. He does a fine job. But it was much more fun to watch Bruce Stern and these sort of scuzzy criminals that Bruce Stern hires to uh, to track him down.
2: Seen the, the two main characters, both uh, Ryan O'Neal and Isabella Johnny. Barely say anything the entire movie. I don't think they speak a word of dialogue until what seven, eight minutes into the movie, and even then, it's it's barely relevant. Um, but yeah, it's it's almost a pure genre exercise in a lot of ways. I mean, there's the opening and closing car chases, and that sort of weird orange Mercedes Benz tour through the uh, the parking garage, and the rest is these kind of quiet moments that help build up that tension. Um, but yeah, you're right. I don't think it actually says much more than that.
0: A lot of people have that same. Yeah, I agree. A lot of people had that same problem with with Drive. People who kind of uh, didn't connect with that movie was the, the main complaint was like Ryan Gosling is just kind of this blank slate. He's just almost too passive. And I mean, other than when he's, you know, uh, being assertive when he needs to be, but he just doesn't say a whole lot. There's not a lot of, uh, you know, externalized chemistry between him and Carey Mulligan in that film. And I, it's, it's, it's incredible to watch Ryan O'Neill play this sort of nonchalant anti-hero where it's just, yeah, again, he doesn't speak hardly a line of dialogue. And yet he does so much more with facial expressions and body language and just being, you know, cool throughout the
2: whole movie. He's, he's like cool as a cucumber even when the cops are chasing him. He's, he's smashed into the cop cars and he's total blank face and hasn't even yeah.
4: one thing I noticed immediately about this movie is that no one buttons their shirts beyond, like, three buttons. There's three unbuttoned. Everyone walks around with three. I don't know if it was because it was 1978 and that was just the thing. Or, yeah, I I would say that uh, Patrick O'Neill's – sorry, Sorry. Brian O'Neill's chest hair does more acting in the movie than (laughs) he does. But that's just my take. I I really think that guy is – a soggy, uninteresting actor. And I, I think it's the framing that does more than his actual presence.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, sorry. So I, I like that um, with Ryan O'Neill, I mean, when you say he's kind of soggy and, and not all that interesting, I mean, the only three things I've seen him in are this, Barry Lyndon, and chances are. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
4: you've uh, never you've you never know. subject yourself to the to the uh populist you know mega hit of uh love story that that's probably his biggest film. no i don't think so like
1: yeah probably, I,
3: uh,
2: probably, probably uh, paper moon is probably a better uh... oh
3: yeah oh, paper moon's really good yeah, yeah, and what's up doc is good too
1: so there you go i mean you guys have more experience than than i do i mean do you find him kind of an uninteresting presence as an actor like if this was the first movie where I actually felt um something coming off of him like as a presence or as charisma, like Barry Linden is a, a fantastic movie, but he's just kind of playing the part and kind of going through like I don't really latch onto him whereas here some of those moments where he just stares guys down it's badass and okay. i I really liked it
2: This is probably my favorite performance by him, although I thought he was pretty effective in Barry Linden as well because. That character is just almost a cipher in a lot of ways, so he, he kind of fit that role pretty well.
1: Um, and you know, when you say it doesn't say anything, I would agree with that. It's mostly just a genre film. But one of the things that I really liked about it was Bruce Dern as the police officer, and the methods and tactics that he's willing, the the the, the risks that he's willing to take to get this guy who's just because he's never been caught just cuz this guy's the best driver he hasn't really done anything that bad but bruce Dern really wants him because he's never been caught i'm the best cop i gotta get this i love the fact that he's willing to let a bank be robbed to get him like i don't i can't think of any movies where the cop will just outright put lives in danger like public like citizens' lives in danger and allow a bank to be robbed just so he can get it. Like, he sets up the bank robbery. That's. I thought that was a pretty cool twist. The
2: bank robbers, came back to what Kurt was saying about the sleazy oiliness of some of the characters, those two bank robbers are just great because they are completely sleazy.
4: What was the, the, the one glasses. guy's name was Glasses. He was great. <laughs> he looked like... Um, geez, who's uh, Harold, Harold and Harold and Maud? Bud Court, he reminded me of Bud Court. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like a, like an angrier Bud Court. Um, a little bit of Wall Sean in there. Uh, and the other guy, I don't remember. Everyone in the movie seems to not have a name. Like they all go by some attribute. Uh, and I can't remember what the um, greasy Mexican dude was. But I, I guess he's the mm-hmm. main thug in the movie. Um, the his name Teeth. Teeth. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but really, yeah, I, to get back to what Andrew was saying with, with Bruce Dern, um, Bruce Dern doesn't give a crap about justice or or anything. He's just purely in it for the manly testosterone high of having a worthy foe. I mean, that's clearly – I mean, that's where this is clearly – a movie, movie, um, and and it. When you have something like uh, Drive, or or even the uh, I don't know if you guys ever saw the BMW shorts with uh, Clive Owen, um, oh, right. where they where they try and use the the pure like anonymous driver, they actually get pathos and that. Whereas Hill is just going for the cinema of cool. It's no surprise at one point in the movie when you see Ryan O'Neill laying in bed as Bruce Dern comes in, it's an exact like shot of the opening of Le Samurai. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that cinema of cool is what Hill was going for in this. Like he just wanted the film to be badass, nothing else. Like, I mean, even Isabel Ajani in the movie, she's, she's, stunning she's like a porcelain doll in the movie um but she doesn't do anything she's just there to look good in like an evening suit um and basically come to him for money I I I, I, if there's an issue I have with this movie is how it how it doesn't go beyond the simplest of um like premise, like it it doesn't do anything with itself. It just says, "Here we are, we're done."
3: But it does that well, so like, I was okay with that. I mean, if a film says out to be just a genre film, but it's really good at being that genre film, I, you know, it doesn't need to be anything more than that for me.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. I I can't really look at that as a as a drawback that it doesn't say anything more. Um, what I like about it is that both the Johnny and and O'Neill and their characters, I mean, they're barely characters. They, I don't think a Johnny cracks a smile once in the movie. Uh, same mm-hmm. for O'Neill. I mean, even when they're under under duress, their expressions barely barely change. And I think that's kind of kind of cool. That the, your main two characters are really not very empathetic from that point of view. You don't hate them, but
4: they're they're just kind of there, going through their paces. Well, do you like? Bruce Dern, or do you just think he's a royal asshole in the movie? What's the reaction to his uh, character? Both, actually.
3: Yeah, he's going to those aren't mutually <laughs> exclusive.
2: It's funny, though. I mean, I agree with what you said about uh, before being the Rosetta Stone, but in some ways it's one of the calmer Bruce Dern performances. Everybody in this movie kind of encounter in contrast to 52 Pickup, which we'll get to, is very almost calm. In the way they react to things, whereas Fifty Two Pickup, when they get angry, man, they just go way over the top. So it's a very interesting kind of contrast between the two films. Well, speaking I, I of turn in this movie, mm-hmm.
4: John Frankenheimer, um, who who also does car chases uh, very well, although Fifty Two Pickup really doesn't have much beyond just driving a Porsche around. Um, but if you if you look back, there's this wonderful shot that I I wonder if Frankenheimer stole. Uh, from the driver, um, there's the big car chase in Ronin where they go through Nice and and they go the wrong way up the one way street and they you know typical mm-hmm. car chase stuff. But if you look at the character of Teeth, we're like three quarters of the way through that. They're driving through the warehouse, they're doing everything in the big thing. Then he finally decides to click on his seatbelt like when shit gets heavy. <laughs> and I know in the middle of that Ronan chase. It's halfway through it before um, I think it's Jonathan Price or no, it's it's Stellan Skarsgård. As soon as uh, Natasha macaloney drives up the wrong way of the street, and then they're going at full blast, he reaches over like, okay, now the the car chase has gotten dangerous, and it just it's done almost like a deadpan. It's like a little comedy um, gesture. And if there's one thing I did love about the driver is that there are these little almost like deadpan grace notes scattered throughout the Mm film when he decides to switch apartments and he rents that divey hotel. And I think the actual character who rents like the frizzy haired girl is named frizzy in the credits. (laughs) And so he does the transaction. It's pretty no nonsense. I want a room. Just give me a room. And then she's like, you can have a TV for a buck extra. And he looks at her like, no, no, (laughs) <laughs> like it just it, It's just put in there just to give that little bit of extra flavor um, to the thing. I think there's and, – and like Bob mentioned, that Mercedes uh, is possibly the ugliest car on the planet. So you, you kind of – A, you take pleasure in Bruce Dern – sorry, not Bruce Dern, in Ryan O'Neill saying, you guys are so far beneath me, I'm going to answer your question of whether or not I'm capable – in this fashion and B, you kinda want that like you kinda want that car to be destroyed I don't know if it's again if it's a nineteen seventy-eight thing like it feels like that car is the color that the appliances were there was either that like the avocado green or whatever that orange feels like it's in that color palette but man that's an ugly car
2: there's not a lot of wallpaper back then too as well yeah the, the car chases I mean those are the the, the key linchpins of the movie are, like you said before, Kurt, I think fantastic. They they put you in the car, you see it from the driver's point of view, and when they're going that fast, they're really going that fast. There's no film speed up, there's no trickery to make it look like they're going faster. It really feels like they're just bombing along those roads. And, uh, you know, there's no tricky things to it. It's it's not quite as, you know, like a like bullet. But, holy cow, all, both of those chases at the start and the end yeah. are fantastic.
0: The amplified sense of danger and intensity, like... Those chasings are just incredible. And I'm kind of like re- reminded at times of like the sort of visceral gopher broke style that like uh, Carpenter employed for like something like Assault on Precinct Thirteen. But it's obviously there, you know, it's more about the entrapment and here it's more about the wide open spaces of LA for all these criminals and cops to inhabit. And I don't know if the film needs to really say anything other than like here it is and here's the simple, hard uh, clarity of it all, that these criminals and cops sort of all work in these uh, similar manipulative kind of fashions, you know, they, they chase each other to no end and they all seem to uh, collide and constantly, you know, uh, conflict in ways that are manipulative. And in similar ways at times, you know, it's that whole, it's, you know, what Michael Mann probably emphasized a lot in something like Heat that, you know, oh, look at what cops do. They're just as corrupt in some ways, like with Brewster and setting up the bank heist and everything like that. Um, and then, you know, in terms of it being a solid, amazing, straight for, you know, like 90 minutes solid genre flick, I mean, it's just right up there. I, I remember, like, uh, not too long ago, I saw Jonathan Mostow's Breakdown, and when I saw that movie, it's really like, here's the setup, here are the bad guys, let's just go all crazy. And it's just, you know, 90 minutes of tight action. And that sometimes, it just works. And you got a guy like Walter Hill behind the camera, you can't go wrong.
2: What's funny, though, is that there isn't wall-to-wall action in this movie, if, if you're thinking of straight-up action. Sure. When I first saw it, I heard, oh, it's, you know, it's car chases back, you know, front to back. And it isn't. It's really the the one the beginning at the end and they're long and the middle mm-hmm. section with the orange Mercedes. There's not a lot more action. It, it's it's still riveting and, and great, but it's not a full-fledged wall-to-wall action movie. Uh, although like fact, it's not like it feels like it's going slow at all.
1: I like that it gives it time to breathe. And I like the fact that they within each um, like car chase and stuff they use all these different cars, uh, big cars, little cars, and they're constantly showing. I think you mentioned it quickly with the different camera angles like I loved the the camera shot out the back window as the cars would go around turns and you could see the the whoever was chasing them and I remember that was one of the big complaints about drive is there's not really much driving in this movie there's that one there 's the opening sequence and then there's that one thing in the middle which isn't all that exciting i 'd have to go back and double check but i am i'm pretty sure that's right and a lot of people were complaining about it whereas this movie even though i mean no it's not wall to wall chases there's a good chunk of it in here and it's all mm-hmm. creative it's all different they're in different locations they're in different times of day they're using different vehicles um it's duke's a hazard for a good 45 minutes of this yeah, and maybe
2: that that's why people tend to say it's it feels like it's wall to wall action because those scenes are so very effective
1: Yep.
4: Yeah, there's a sense of almost strategy, particularly in the opening scene, where you see him rub cop cars in a certain way, like he's and he, and he lets them crash into each other and he pushes them off, which you don't actually see in normal car chases. Like, normally they just chase until someone, you know, some there's a guy with a fruit cart or this or that or whatever. Um, in this movie, you actually do get a sense from the filmmaking that... Um, the main character is pushing the car this way to get that effect and separating things and um, and whatnot. Particularly in the opening chase, the second chase has a lot of fun because it because of the warehouse, the fact that it's inside, it's not really out on the street. Uh, and I must admit, I, I think that the other guys are driving a like a Trans Am or something. Mm-hmm. When they crash that thing in the in the shipping like loading dock, that is one of the most unique, you know, like sort of car wrecks just the framing of those two guys getting up climbing out of the car accident as the car is sort of halfway on the platform halfway off and it doesn't it doesn't explode it doesn't it just the car is just wrecked and twisted metal and and it's just falls down into that pit he holds the shot there for a good two minutes of them looking around for um a jenny and o'neill Wherever they are in the warehouse, it's it's a really, it's a really sharp bit of in a modern film. I don't believe they would ever do this anymore. Um, I don't believe that a modern film would have car chases like this and not have a bigger gimmick um, or some, you know, level of slickness to it. Um, Fast and the Furious. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and yeah, I i mean, the, 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 when I watch something like The Driver, I, I am really pulled back to uh, when cars, crashes were not CGI cars. Like, yeah. these cars have, like, I don't care how good CGI has gotten in the past few years, they do not have the sense of weight, and, and maybe it's just 70s cars as well, Um There's not a lot of plastic on these cars. They're
1: chasing them in a a giant red pickup truck.
3: (laughs) I loved when that chase started. I was like, really? You're gonna chase this muscle car with a pickup? And I was like, Oh right, you're the driver.
2: That that's a souped up pickup too. That's a nice It is it is funny,
4: it's lowered to the ground, yeah.
2: But I love at the end of that chase, just before the, the crash, it is more of a slow paced cat and mouse thing. It's one of the slowest car chases through all those stacks of boxes in the warehouse. Um, I really love that moment too, where it's you know they're just kind of going around the corners, and he's driving the car, and you just see the car turn very, very slowly. That was a, that was a wonderful kind of piece within that car chase of a slower one.
4: Well, I want to get away from the cars and actually focus on the thrills of the movie, because I think that this movie is invites you as a viewer in to get the thrills of watching this type of movie. But all of the characters, including Ajani get off on the thrill of the lifestyle that they've chosen, whether it's cop, gambler, or driver. Um, and I have to imagine that a filmmaker like Quentin Tarantino is a big fan of Walter oh, yeah. Hill in insofar that if you look at the non-action sequence of this movie, they're almost always very pure. Like there might be someone off screen, like in another room, but basically they're two characters, and two, whether it's Bruce Dern and his... You know, one of the guys working for him, the other cop that he's, I guess, mentoring, or whether it's a Jenny and Dern, or whether it's a Jenny and Ryan O'Neill, and he lets those character scenes play out with two people squaring off. And if you watch Quentin Tarantino's movie, even if they have huge ensemble casts, the scenes are in almost all of his movies are just two characters talking. You look at Jackie Brown, you look at Inglourious Bastards, even Reservoir Dogs, it's almost exclusively two characters in a room having a scene together. And and I really like that style of filmmaking. It lets the actors maximize what they can do and someone mentioned that there's not a lot of like flashy camera work in this movie. It's it's just simple back and forth reverse shots, static shots that let the probably carefully chosen framing, but really let the actors just do their thing. When Bruce Stern's standing there just asking O'Neill to punch him in the face so that he can take him in, um, he lets that scene play. It plays beautifully.
1: Yeah, and I think it plays well with the non-dialogue moments, too. Like, there's a lot of shots and a lot of scenes where characters are just looking at each other or pondering mm-hmm. each other or not look... Like, when Bruce Dern is up in her apartment and he's uh, up in Isabella Johnny's apartment, it's almost soap opera esque. Like she's sort of looking out the window and giving all these facial reactions to stuff that he's saying behind her. but they're both looking at the camera. Like I think that's what you mean by just really really putting the camera in the right place. Letting these actors do what they do, even without dialogue. Because there was a ton of those shots, yeah. Like the one on screen there. Um, well in that scene they are looking at each other, but there's a long take That's where they Andrew, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> um, there's a long take where they're not looking at each other. But and that happens all the time. When the guy breaks into his house and he's gonna shoot him. He punches them down the stairs, and then when they get to the bottom of the stairs, they just stand there and kind of stare at each other for a good, you know, twenty seconds. And that ha- happens a lot. There you go, Bob. Good job. <laughs> I knew it was there. So, some, yeah. yeah the, see that picture right there. That scene is, you know, it's a good two minutes. They'll flash over to Ryan O'Neal hanging out in the bedroom, um, listening to the conversation. But
0: it's, kind it's kind like a very very film noir kind of a
3: shot there.
4: Well, to me, that is a Sergio Leone shot, and. It, it, it's not a surprise that um, Walter Hill remade um,
0: Yojimbo slash
4: Fistful of Dollars um, with, I think it was with Bruce Willis in the mid-90s. Um, he, he, he does have that. And, and I think that Leone style of filmmaking, which is kind of comic book, kind of epic, mythic, and not necessarily human, or mm-hmm. humanity, if if humanity comes out, you get it almost as a tangent, not as a, this movie's actually saying things about people. Because I think people can understand um, a character like Bruce Dern getting off on the the chase aspect of his job. So you can get that, that particular pleasure, um, even though it's against the rules, um, you can get that side that he's human, although the, I don't feel that in at any point in the movie... Um, you know, this is not a movie about the human condition, which which which, which, which to, to clarify my point. Many genre films are. I actually have a real soft spot, and I and I know we'll get into this when we switch to fifty two pickup um, about humanity uh, can come out of these types of films. It it doesn't have to be this way. I agree that you people, are, you guys, are saying it's a choice. Fair enough, but. I, I, I would say that's the only drawback for me and and it's interesting that when Refn made The Driver which admittedly is not a remake in any way, it just is that one scene, it's just that one scene that's the same, there's nothing else in common here Um, but what Refn brought in was a palpable sense of real people, like even though these people are behaving, Drive is an unabashed genre effort but when you look at Kerry Mulligan. When you look at Oscar Isaac, when you look at even someone like Albert Brooks, um, they feel a lot more like, you know, human beings that have lives outside of the frame. I feel that in the Driver, no one has any function outside of the frame of the film, for better or for worse.
0: They don't feel like real human beings or a real hero, is what you're saying.
4: They don't. <laughs> they, they feel like they're there for the purpose of this film. Yeah. And that's it.
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting though. I mean, it's, you know, you brought up Leone, and it's, I was thinking of Brisson's pickpocket in this movie as well. Like there's just, I mean, he, he seems to really uh, like that sort of um, moral ambiguous character where you just, you know, he, he doesn't really have any sort of, uh, you know, stance on anything. He's just, he's really good at his job or he's really good at his passion and he's, just a damn good driver, and that's all he does. And he sort of defines himself by that.
4: But the and, difference between this and Pickpocket is that the character in Pickpocket is always concerned about why he's doing what he's doing. Whereas yeah, he has a, he has a self-awareness is, about it. is far more zen. Yeah. I draw no, this is, that's this what is, I do. I... I you right. know, he doesn't even want the money. Like it's not about the money or anything. It's just pure and that's where it comes back to the the, the Alan Delon uh La Samurai, which I was gonna say that that's a that, comparison like to Melville. That, yeah. that is definitely um like these movies mirror more than anything. Um and yeah, I mean you don't feel like I when I watch La Samurai, I look at La Samurai as kind of a comedy and and I find when I'm watching the driver, I look at it as kind of a comedy, because the whole thing, it it's striving so hard for cool, it's kind of inherently ridiculous. And I feel that with a lot of Quentin Tarantino's films, which I believe are genre exercises as well, and and they they when you strive for a certain level of deadpan cool uh, and don't give them any real human emotions, because I mean, there's no. A physical or emotional connection between any character in this movie, other than mm-hmm. the cat and mouse, a, a Jenny isn't even there. Like, isn't even in the standard sense of a love interest. She's 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 just there. <laughs> like, she really doesn't have anything to do in the movie other than look great all the time. But she doesn't feel exploited in the same way that, like, in a normal sort of movie where the hero would drag her around by the arm. She's not that type of cipher character she's she's her own but but i guess she's no different than any of the men in that you know she just does her own thing with with what limited screen time she has i I, i'm curious one thing that played out my mind would be would the driver work without a jenny's character even in the movie and i i mean obviously not from a plotting point of view but from a from an actual what the movie's trying to do it probably would have it probably would have worked without her there.
2: Yeah, but she does have, a, I think, a pretty relevant thing late in the movie where she's talking about how he plays a sucker's game mm-hmm. and how when she plays poker and loses, she just loses money. When he plays his game and loses, he's going to go to jail. And I, I just like that sort of contrast, too, where he is playing more of that sucker's game. She understands what's at risk. And if, if he does, you know, he, he may not care, I guess, but it's so much greater than what she's putting on the line. So I I kind of like how she fits in the movie from that perspective. But otherwise, you're right, the movie could still work without her. Uh, But I'm kind of glad that she is there. For several reasons.
1: All right, anybody else have anything? um...
2: Uh, The last thing I was going to say is that I probably like Drive, the Reffin film, the least amongst the crew here, I guess. I, I like it, but I can never really look at the whole for that movie. I I liked all the different elements, but I never really got much more out of it. Whereas the driver works better as a whole for me. And I'm not sure if it's because there's just a very consistent tone and and tension throughout the driver, whereas Drive seemed very up and down for me with some of the slow moments being a bit too slow. Uh, But it seems like the rest of you like drive at least as much or even more than the driver.
1: Well, Jandy and I were talking about this a little bit on Twitter last night. Jandy, did you have any... Comparisons or anything you wanted to make regarding Drive and the driver?
3: I think what we um, what we were talking about on Twitter was well, you had said that the driver was better. Yeah. And um, I think I would actually probably agree in an in an objective sense. I think as a whole, like it it works better as a whole. But um, I just love the style of Drive so much, like the aesthetic of it, and. while the driver has an aesthetic, it's like it's just not as kind of in-your-face as in Drive.
1: I, I agree. Like, when I said I like the driver better, that's true. The one thing, well, there's a few things I like about Drive better, but the main thing for that Drive has going for it is that style. It's mm-hmm. very slick. It's very neon. It's I don't know. It's got a very distinct style to it and the look, and a, and a oral um, cues and, and whatnot, whereas the driver, from like an aesthetic point of view, is pretty whatever. It's it, just kind
3: it of straight-up like, 70s it genre. Looks
2: like yeah. just, and he said, it's more like back a about the, the framing of the shots. I mean, from that point of view, the style is fantastic in the driver. But otherwise, yeah, the rest of the aesthetic It's
3: not is. showy. It's right. well-done, mm-hmm. but it's not showy.
2: Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I guess I'm still trying to figure out why Drive didn't quite grab me as much as I thought it would and I still think should have because I think the style is fantastic and it it just never quite connected with me. So I'm still trying to figure that one out.
1: I think the characters aren't as fun. Like it's all out kind of... I think the violence in Drive just... I I don't think it's necessary or unnecessary, but I do think that what I liked about The Driver, as Kurt mentioned, was some of the comedy. It's just more fun, whereas Drive kind of punches you in the face a few times. Like, you would never... in, in With a drive, hammer. You get a hammer, or you get a <laughs> fork in the eye, whereas in The Driver, it's Bruce Dern going, does anybody want this briefcase that's empty? <laughs> like, Or just, you know, fighting with his... The way he fights with his... Um, what do you call him? Uh, it's late at night. I'm having brain farts. People below him in the ranks, uh, the way they go at each other um, and fight, it's almost like scrubs. Um, <laughs> I, like it's not quite laugh out loud moments, but it's it's all these dialogue moments of guys just kind of screwing with each other, clearly um, yeah. on the police side. He always uses
4: the phrase cowboy. Bruce Stern does to describe the driver, but really the driver is not a cowboy at all. The driver is completely constrained and has his rules and, and does his thing and, and unlike um, uh, The Transporter or you know these other movies that sort of rip off the lone driver concept where the movie centers around the main character breaking his rules the main character never breaks his rules. The character who is the real cowboy in the movie is actually Dern, and you see that from the from the spats he has with his underlings when they're going, what the hell are you doing? Like, this is just bullshit for you doing the job. This job is not your personal playground. Whereas the driver character is doing exactly what he does. The only reason why it becomes a cat and mouse chase is because of Dern, not because he mm-hmm. wants this. He just wants to do his job and do it well, whereas Dern wants to like fool around and make big movie speeches and 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 God bless him for it. I mean, yeah. to me, he's he's really the only character that has a like a true presence in the movie. I I I, mm-hmm. I know that you guys all feel that O'Neill is is there's something going on, and I mean, make no mistake, Jenny's great. She just She just has to pose like – to me, she reminds me a lot of Lucy Liu. And Lucy Liu in a lot of movies, she just poses and uses that sort of porcelain Asian profile to do most of her acting. And if you look at a Jenny in just about any other movie that she's done – she is like a statue in this movie. She does very little. I, I mean, I guess that's the point.
2: But she does have a few good facial cues, though. There's the one scene, I think I put up the, the picture of it, in the hotel room with uh, Dern, where she's facing away and then she turns to him. And the sneer she gives him, it's very kind of subtle, is really, really good. Like, she's yeah. total disdain. Talking about? Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, she doesn't have a line like Dern has with a real sad song. Only trouble is sad songs ain't selling this year. <laughs> <laughs> I love that shit. <laughs> and Dern sells it. He's 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 so good. He's also really good, oddly for a good segue, he was in uh John Frankenheimer's uh, Black Sunday. So that and he was a hell of a hell of a performance in that as well, so
1: All right, guys, should we take a quick break and then come back with 52 pickup?
0: Sure, let's pick up with 52 pickup.
1: All right. We'll take about two, three, four minutes here, and we'll be right back. Sweet. (coughs) Feel free to turn off your cameras or whatever.
4: So, are you coming out next week uh, for Blogger Night? Yeah, I'll yep. be there for sure. There is a bunch of us that are going to show up early and then head over to the Lightbox for Zardoz. Yes, I nine. heard about the uh, the Zardoz uh,
2: Exodus. Yeah. Yes, the Exodus. I uh, probably will not join. I I do like Zardoz. I do enjoy it. I, I don't think I need to see it on the big, the big screen. screen. Oh, I, I may for regret me, that. this
4: is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I may regret that. But <laughs> I love this movie. I, I've, the sad thing is that I've seen Zardoz like four times in the last two years, and I'm still going to see <laughs> it on the big screen. That's
3: far
2: too it many. many. It,
4: is, it is too many. We, we actually did a movie club podcast on Zardoz. Um, Zardoz and Flash Gordon. Um, I still have to catch up
2: with Flash, especially after having seen uh, Ted this past year. Uh, like many people, probably want to catch up with that movie finally.
4: Well, I think um, uh, you should watch it with the boy.
2: That is if, absolutely. He, he would love
4: Flash Gordon. There's, I mean, even though there's all this gross sexual stuff, like Flash Gordon has like an, an insane amount of sexual innuendo in it. Um, for such an earnest comic book kind of movie, it, it it's still totally innocent in the way it is sleazy, if that makes any sense.
2: That's absolutely a plan. I just have to track it down. I haven't been able to find it at the uh, the local video stores, so.
4: Still waiting on Andrew, are we? Well, you can hear Emma in the background. I have no idea whether he actually pauses the broadcast or whether there are people going, what the hell am I listening to? <laughs> it says we're still on air.
2: So.
1: Oh, oh we are on the air. Yeah, 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 the video feed just keeps going. I can't stop it. So hi to everybody out there watching, if you are. We, we appreciate it. I hope it.
2: you enjoyed the short discussion of Zardoz and Josh Gordon. <laughs>
1: Which was a previous movie club podcast, ironically. We do have a few viewers, what? so welcome. Oh, uh, nice. I'm going to try a little bit of an experiment here. It may work. Experiment. It may not. Welcome to the YouTube Hangout. Click Add Videos.
0: Oh, right. crazy! Here
1: we're going to try. We're going to try this before we get into our. Well, we we were going to talk about ourselves a little bit, right, before we get into Fifty Pickup. Um, mm-hmm. Let's we can we can do that. Um, I don't know really what to say, but traditionally we've kind of gone around the table again and just gone a little bit more in depth about I don't know what. Kurt, you're the <laughs> well, one uh, again I for this part. Part of me.
3: I said you didn't prepare us for this part.
1: Well, we should introduce the new the two people who have not taken part in a movie club before. You've both been part of at least the row three cinecast, um, so you're no strangers to podcasting, clearly. But this is the first time you guys have been on the movie club. Are you regular listeners of the movie club?
2: Um, starting tomorrow, I will be. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> been meaning
2: to.
3: Honesty. That, think that's was-
4: how we get listeners, is we recruit True. them to be on the show one at a time. It's a, it's a very um, direct way of recruiting listeners.
3: I've listened to some of one or two. I only like to listen to podcasts if I've seen the movie, and most of the time I haven't seen the movies you guys are talking about. Mm.
4: Well that that's actually a good segue because on row three and on previous episodes of the Cinecast when you have on your more like specialty or or, or your enthusiasm, Jandy, tends towards um, silent film and fifties, forties, fifties era cinema?
3: Thirties, forties, fifties. Studio era, I like to say.
4: <laughs> and you've uh, you acted as a volunteer and were fairly involved in LA's Cinefamily.
3: Cinema. Yeah, up till about four or five months ago, I I was a volunteer there for two years, two or three years. Yeah. Every week. What's
2: been slowing you down recently, Jandy? <laughs> <laughs> Slacker. Pregnancy.
3: <laughs> Very slowing down.
2: <laughs> yes, okay. Jandy and I are, are uh, classic film BFFs, so we finally get nice. nice to face.
1: And when you guys write um, for Row 3, is it separate from, do you kind of cross post? Or do you have totally unique content at your your other sort of personal sites? So Eternal Sunshine, or, sorry, yeah, what is it? Eternal I, I should know it, right, by heart? Eternal Sunshine <laughs> and
2: Logical It, it is mind. one of the longer blog names out there, yeah. Eternal Sunshine and Logical Mind. Um, a, a bit of both. Uh, the Blind Spots I'm putting on both sites. Uh, some posts I put on both, and some just go on row three, and some just on the blog. It really, really depends on the day and what I think fits in either one. Uh, haven't been writing much the last month or so, uh, which I'm hoping to change in the next week or so, uh, because I want to wrap up the blind spots for this year and then start again in January. Because I think uh, Andrew yourself and John might even be joining us next year in the blind spots as well,
1: right? I, I will be doing a blind spot once a month. Yep, I let uh, I let viewers or readers, listeners, whatever, vote. I had a list of 60 movies, I think it was, and just let people vote, and I'll pick the top 10 vote getters plus two of my own. So yeah, and I caught your blind spot post today on Nanook of the North. That movie's awesome.
2: It is, yeah, yeah. And uh, I got another one coming up tomorrow. I'm sort of reposting ones a row three now they did earlier in the year. So
1: very cool. Despite pregnancy, Jandy, are you uh, are you still trying to get some writing done or?
3: Um, I haven't done a lot of writing, as <laughs> Row 3 readers will know, for the last uh, several months. I, I did put up a few posts for the AFI Film Festival, but um, other than that, uh haven't been doing too much. I've kind of slowed down on my normal columns. I, hope, I keep hoping to pick those up, but I just, you know, <laughs> too tired and then moving and the holidays, and it's just like so many things. Totally. Um, but as far as uh, cross-posting stuff, it kinda of like Bob it depends on what it is and what I feel like doing um, I try to keep columns separate or, or I'll like when I used to do the film on TV columns on uh, row three I would just put a link on my site over to row three instead of cross-posting both um, I don't know it just depends I haven't been doing enough writing for either one lately for it to matter
1: <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> those dry you... spells, so
1: oh sorry Go ahead. how about you Jim how are things going over at the Directors Club? What what do you got? Oh
0: man, uh, so much is happening there lately. Uh, I mean, we—I um, just looked and saw that one of our episodes hit the two thousand download mark. That was uh, a that's pretty exciting. Very nice uh, <laughs> for us, anyway. Just like uh, going through the stats because I was curious about that, and you no, know, and it's also worth mentioning that we're coming up on episode fifty,
1: and. Um that's crazy, I can't believe you guys are at fifty already
0: it is it is crazy because we do this pretty much every other week, and um you know it's not easy to cover and sometimes we have to split up into two episodes or we can't talk about every single um movie from you know the director's filmography, but we do this try we try and do this every other week, and we have done some bonus episodes here and there, but for episode fifty it's gonna be kind of like a clip show uh, mixed with our best of the year sort of wrap-up, which we're very excited about, because those those episodes are always huge.
4: Now, which the... director was your most downloaded show, then?
0: Uh, Christopher Nolan.
4: Okay, okay. That always so...
0: spiked after Dark Knight Rises came out.
4: Yes, the Batman um, effect.
0: Mm-hmm, indeed. Yeah, but no, I probably mentioned this when I first came on. Uh, you know, if it wasn't for the movie club, and, you know, of course, you guys... At row three, I I wouldn't have been inspired to start the Directors Club, so I've probably said that many times before. But uh, it's worth mentioning again, especially in you know in light that we've been doing this now for two years and we got episode fifty coming up. So it's 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 been nothing but a, a thrill ride ever since we started this, and it just keeps getting better.
4: That's fantastic. Those yeah. shows are always a lot of fun.
0: Absolutely, and we're looking forward to having you on again. Uh, Kurt for Michael Haneke, and uh, Andrew On for Roman Polanski. Got some controversial directors to talk about there.
1: And thank you for, um, well, the music that we'll have closing out this show, but the music you, you put on your own show each week, it's always a barrel of <laughs> something.
2: <laughs> yeah. You've uh, contributed to, to the Cinecast as well in Row 3, Jim. That's, that's great stuff. Oh, thanks.
0: Appreciate that.
1: Did you want to plug your – you have a music site, too, where you do legit music, not just Weird Al movies.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I haven't put up a whole lot of new stuff lately because I'm in grad school and concentrating on that right now. But, uh, yeah, no, there's a lot lot of records up there from the past, I don't know, like 10 years at this point. Um, It's pretty much all up at gardenonatrampoline.bandcamp.com. Garden on a Trampoline is actually a reference to um, all the real girls. My,
4: uh, which is bit. in the background, that, yeah, which it's... was confirmed through the vision of your webcam. Yes. Yeah, trying
1: to point yeah, at it. Yeah, as...
4: Goat for short. <laughs> um, yes. Outside of Row 3,
1: Kurt, anything you got going on you wanted to mention?
4: Uh, no, other than my conversation with Bob that I'm super stoked to go see Zardoz <laughs> on the big screen. That's as exciting as my life uh... As my life gets, although I, I, I guess I should say I'm constantly watching movies. I know Jandy has a little one on the way. Bob's uh, son is is a little older than my son. Um, it's always a pleasure to watch films with your children. Um, and we just this week, due to the Hobbit coming out, uh, I and and my wife going off um, to be graded for a Taekwondo belt, which takes forever. Um, we decided okay let's start those lord of the rings extended editions so uh, it's been a lot of fun this week and and and, and i had to re put myself back in the headspace for watching films like the driver and 52 pickup which are as far as humanly possible from something like the lord of the rings which is such a produced you know very deliberate object and these films feel like there's just so much more in the background that's just because they're shot in real cities um, but it has been fun watching the kids reaction to uh, to the extended editions not the shortest series of films to get through uh, in a week we've been plowing through them though it's been a lot of fun
2: yeah we, uh, we went through all three of the films with uh, my son earlier this year first time he saw them actually and it was amazing to me how riveted he was for each of the extended editions. Um, I, I didn't approach it with a, as much enthusiasm, but while I was watching it, I was absolutely pulled into every single narrative of those movies. I got to tell you. So yeah, like you say, Kurt, it, it's it's great rewatching stuff with your kid
4: because they bring a whole new new perspective to it. But but I'm sure everyone has this experience. There's a movie that you love. And you, you, you're like, i got to show this to someone. And then when you watch the movie with someone, you're like feeding off of how you perceive their reaction. Is. You're feeding more off that than watching the film at many times. It doesn't have to be kids. It can be anyone. But uh, that that's sort of the experience that I, I take a lot of pleasure with um, uh, when we do these things. And mm-hmm. I can tell you, um, in a perverse, like, bad parenting louis ck style uh situation i took some weird schadenfreude bad parent pleasure in watching my daughter be just driven to you know hp lovecraft level madness when when the spider popped out of the um of the hole in the in the middle of the second film that, that that spider you know when you watch that as an adult you go wow that they 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 really went to town on that spider when you watch that as an adult with kids in room you're like that is a scary fucking spider <laughs> that is really intense really intense considering how everything else is not quite as viscerally terrifying in that movie um so
1: all right, so let's, um, like I said, I want to try just a little bit of a, an experiment here, and this will bring us into our discussion of...
4: What are we just taking a moment here? I think maybe the YouTube trailer
2: is playing in the background.
4: This is horrible considering Jandy can't drink. <laughs>
0: oh.
1: Alright, I don't know if the video that for you
4: guys or not.
1: We can't. No, we didn't just see none it. None
4: of us can see it.
1: Oh, okay. Could you hear it at least?
4: No, we didn't.
1: No. We were just listening watch. Okay. Uh, well, hopefully that came through on the broadcast.
4: No, I don't think it did. Um... <laughs> it was <a> zen <laughs> moment.
1: That was weird. Okay, well, anyway, <laughs> that was the trailer for 52 Pickup. Uh, hopefully. Which I thought
4: entertaining. Fix it um, and post
2: <laughs> Well, now that we've gathered our thoughts.
1: Yeah, you had time to just think. um so let's, uh, let's go around the virtual table. Let's go backwards this time. We'll start Ooh. with Kurt. Just give us uh, initial impressions and what your history is with the film. Um,
4: second time watching this movie, but the first time I watched it, I really did not know who John Frankenheimer or Elmore Leonard were. So it was kind of a – it was just kind of a – I don't know. I just kind of brushed it off. I was much younger when I watched it the first time. Watching it the second time um, and being a fairly large fan now of reading Elmore Leonard novels um, and a massive John Frankenheimer fan, um, I looked at this movie as just such an odd beast because it doesn't have a lot of the Frankenheimer, what I consider to be Frankenheimer kind of, it just feels like a it's just I haven't seen Black Sunday as as Jim mentioned earlier, but it just feels this movie just captures nineteen eighties Los Angeles sleaze like nothing else. Like I actually just fed off the sleaze watching this movie, and uh, yeah, that brought me great pleasure. <laughs>
0: um, I had never seen this before myself, um, and I'm kind of a fan of the sort of one false move type of plot lines, you know, in which, like, one guy does something dumb and things spiral out of control, uh, and I think one of the film's delights is watching, you know, Roy Scheider sort of gradually dream up a solution to dig himself out of it, and I tend to I tend to enjoy these kinds of setups, because I feel like uh, my mom was always kind of watching these, you know, sort of ridiculous blackmail, adultery films on HBO when I was a kid. I used to get a kick out of like sneaking downstairs late at night to watch something similar to this back at like, you know, midnight or whatever, sort of like in the late eighties. Um, uh, I gotta say that the the main reason for me that this movie was so, uh, entertaining was, uh, Glover, (laughs) His, his portrayal of, uh, a blackmailing pornographer is just such a delight in sleaze. And, uh, He's, I, I believe his name is Raimi, so I f- found that interesting. Like, maybe he's possibly named after Sam Raimi. <laughs> of course, that's probably me just reaching there. But um, And I, 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 I also am a huge Elmore Leonard fan, but I didn't get the same sort of, like, euphoria when it came to, like, strong characterization, like in something like Out of Sight or Get Shorty even. But I will say that, like, there, this movie has its pleasures, but it's not something I would be stoked to rewatch over and over again.
4: So yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. I guess um, as far as what I knew about it going in, I knew the title, I knew it had Roy Scheider in it, and I knew it was directed by John Frankenheimer, and it was from the eighties. So I was guessing it was probably a thriller because of Frankenheimer. And I thought it might have something to do with cars because you paired it with the driver. (laughs) But that was all I knew going in. So, um, yeah, it was kind of neat to see it with absolutely no context whatsoever. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it had a a sleazy, kind of really trashy charm to it, and I enjoyed watching it, but um, I I didn't like it as much as the driver, and I, I probably won't go back to it.
2: I think I'm pretty much in agreement with you guys on that front. That the sleaziness is kind of a hoot, but in a lot of ways, I, I just kept looking and going like this. This isn't a great film, but I kept watching and I was highly entertained. Yeah, uh, you're right. Uh, uh, Lover is, is is great and funny and all the other. Was it Robert Trevor? Isn't it by the way? His name is a palindrome, which is hilarious. He's fantastic. <laughs> um, everybody in that movie is actually playing it as you know, as opposed to The drivers which was saying before, way more arched, uh, not necessarily over-the-top, although occasionally it gets to that point. Um, but it's a lot of fun. Ron Jeremy is in there in the background in one of the scenes. I think it's one of his first legitimate movies. Um, so, like, they're he, really going for the sleaze on this one for he sure.
4: He has some personal relationship with John Frankenheimer. He's in a lot of John hmm. Frankenheimer. Oh, really? Okay. In the background. I did realize that.
2: Um, it, it, it didn't strike me as a Frankenheimer film. I mean, there there's... A number of things in there that he throws in, lots of frames within frames, which, you know, if you've seen Grand Prix or some of his earlier films, he, he really likes doing. But uh, I know Frankenheimer had, like, one of the best six movie runs back in the 60s. I'll just read the titles quickly Birdman of Alcatraz, Manchurian Candidate, Seven Days in May, The Train, Seconds, and Grand Prix. Those are six, like, fantastic movies all in a row. And then 52 Pickup doesn't <laughs> quite, you know, fit in that same sentence, really. <laughs> But at least it isn't as bad as Reindeer Games. So. still haven't seen that, and I, I think I may keep it that way.
4: Well, actually, no. I, I Not to cut you off, Andrew, but watching 52 Pickup actually makes me want to watch Reindeer Games because <laughs> all of the criticisms of Reindeer Games are strengths in 52 Pickup. So I don't know if people, or if enough time has passed, or it was in the middle of, uh, you know, Benefer kind of era tabloid. with uh, Now that Affleck is a director... Um, and and is kind of reestablishes credibility, looking at Reindeer Games as a as a trash masterpiece in the same way Fifty Two Pickup is might be worthy of. I, but I've never seen it. The first, I've never seen the film. So um, it's. Uh, I didn't even know Frankenheimer directed that movie. So um, I didn't either until now. Yeah, um, now I want to see so- it. As of,
2: yeah, apparently, we all have to see it now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> as of very recently, I've wanted to rewatch Reindeer Games because it's one of those movies that really gets ripped on. As you're surfing the net in the movie yeah. worlds, people just bring up Reindeer Games as one of these horrible, horrible movies. I know I've seen it a couple times. Is it great? No. But I, it's kind of just one of those '90s pulpy trying to be interesting thrillers that doesn't really work but it's not horrible i it's entertaining i don't i never understood the pure hate that's out there for reindeer games i wonder if the little quip in jane silent bob strike back maybe (laughs) brought some of that about but I, i don't know reindeer games is not absolutely horrible i don't think but people should definitely check it out um the, one of the main villains, the the creepy black guy, is one of the main villains in Reindeer Games as well. Um, but back to Fifty Two Pickup. I have a little bit of a unique perspective on this because I saw this movie several times when I was really young and should not have <laughs> been watching this. I, you know, it was just one of those things. It was on HBO or Showtime, and I snuck down in the middle of the night and oh, what's this movie with tits and Murder and violence and all this stuff and i I think the movie really creeped me out as a kid. I watched this stuff and thought it was really um graphic and really naughty, and I don't know if the, I still feel that way today. I watch the movie um you know clearly with an adult eye, but I still have that lingering sort of scarring effect when I watch this movie, I find a lot okay. of it to be not quite as goofy as somebody might, who's watching it for the first time may, may look at it. I look at it as pretty, a lot of it kind of terrifying and scary, and the, these villains are so greasy and so weird and bizarre that they still creep me out. Like, I want to be nowhere near Leo's little porno place or that party where everybody's doing coke and getting naked and it's so so surreal that I don't even want to take a part in it and and the 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 villain the guy that does all the killings creeps the shit out of me his cold-blooded demeanor and the way he talks and the way he looks at people that scene where he tries to kill vanity and he's just Sweating profusely, almost like he's in an airplane movie um, is crazy uh like i I don't know I really now so this will be like the probably about the sixth time I've actually seen this movie, and I'm like <laughs> more and more every time I love it
4: Clarence Williams the third from uh probably most famous from the mod squad, I guess right um but I wonder if his character is in any way the inspiration for Keith David and Requiem for a Dream, because there's definitely a, like they're both pimps, right? Like he's, yeah. um, and, and you definitely get that vibe. I, I think he, I, even more than the villains in the driver, the villains in this movie equally as incompetent, by the way, but, um, they have a lot of personality. Um, Jim mentioned John Glover. This, uh, for me, John Glover was always nice, Jandy. the guy in Gremlins 2, the, the the slick, goofy businessman guy. And I think that this movie, his performance is so strong in this movie that yeah, as much as I love the Joe Dante um, <laughs> Gremlins 2 and his character in that, in other places that I've seen him, he's a pretty prolific character actor, I, I think this is the iconic performance from that actor. He is so good in this movie. Um, he, when he's auto-critique, auto-critiquing his blackmail, vi- uh, blackmail video, yeah. saying oh, I didn't have the lights positioned. And, and he's making, oh, boy, I love this part, this expression. Captured it. Nailed it there. Like every time he narrates these things. And he's such a loose cannon in this movie. Like just clearly he's having a lot of fun as an actor and, and the character in his own little world of, Scams within scams clearly likes that lifestyle. Um, watching him, and I think that that whole scene that you mentioned with the porn stars, I think it's all like real porn stars. I sadly I recognized at least two <laughs> porn actors when I'm watching it, and they weren't Ron Jeremy. The 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 girls. Um, I I think that there was, I think there's a real authenticity in that gross uh, mid '80s Los Angeles. Like that whole sequence, it feels – I mean it feels like a movie, but it it, it feels – it has a documentary vibe to it. Because the way the the film shows all these porn actors just doing their thing, but then when the quote-unquote real actors have to do a scene, the camera moves out of frame. And they – like when Vanity – not that Vanity is a real actress, but when Vanity has a scene and and Kelly Preston has a scene – it moves off to the side when John Glover and Clarence Williams have a scene. It, it it doesn't have so much going on in the background. It 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 that there is just to say, these guys are in the, the the scuzziest company possible. Yeah, you do feel a little
2: uncomfortable at times in this movie, which is funny because at times it's it's cheesy. But Andrew, you're right. I mean, I, I could definitely see how if you saw that when you're younger and you see it now, you would still get that vibe of. Ew. You know, you, you really want to take that shower afterwards. I mean it's
1: uh you know that carries over even into Roy Scheider and Anne Margaret. They're Absolutely. the good guys, but he's still kind of slimy and even
4: green. even mm-hmm. in Jaws, even yeah. in Jaws, Roy Scheider, every movie, French Connection, every movie I've ever seen that guy in, he's oily and sleazy to me. Totally. He just has he just has the face. I'm amazed that Scheider didn't play more villains in his career because he does have that character on his face that he would make a great character actor. And interesting how many like lead roles. And it's interesting, I, I guess, from a Scheider point of view, how much he nails – bob Fosse in all that jazz which is so yeah. off of all the other characters he plays but he does play an oily son of a bitch because that's what bob fossey was so uh, there's something about it and and i think frankenheimer totally like i mean the first within the first 10 minutes of this movie yeah okay he's being kidnapped and blackmailed but it's in the middle of the 80s he's playing a wealthy businessman which is like movie villain in any '80s movie, but and and on top of that, he, he it's revealed that he commits adultery on his loving wife. Like that's a weird way. I mean, that's an Elmore Leonard novel, no doubt. But it's a weird way in a in a film to introduce your quote unquote hero. This is not Death Wish or or other vigilante super libertarian movie where it gives you a bunch of reasons why you're really mad and you're like, okay, fucking Roy, go out there and kill them all. Like, this movie, you, you, you know, he kind of deserves everything that he gets <laughs> yeah. in this movie, but yeah, the movie is still clean. undeterred.
2: He's not overly sympathetic, is he? I mean, and he's cheating on Anne-Margaret, too, which...
4: Yeah,
0: that's that was kind of implausible for me.
4: Yeah. <laughs> well, Anne-Margaret in this movie, for me, is that perfect, perfect balance. She's... Out of her sex pot years, but she's not into her Catherine Deneuve, like, super classy older lady. She's right on on the uh, edge of the knife in this movie. And interestingly enough, she is the most, um, uh, like, she feels like she's got the most classic actor performance, which I do not think that Anne Margaret had that reputation in the 80s. For that style of performance, like she's really good. The scene in the film, the best scene in the entire film, from a like a film like acting point of view, is the scene when Roy Scheider actually confesses to her that he was having an affair, and watching her reactions to that. That plays out so that had such an air of authenticity to me. Yeah. That scene of two adults hashing out their shit in in a, in a way that is. Like there's clearly emotional pain on her side and confusion on his side, but it didn't feel movie histrionic. Like, it felt very, very mature. That which is funny because the rest of the movie is slime. <laughs>
0: yeah, it, but it, it that had a lot seems, of dramatic weight. Yeah. weight.
4: It did. Sure. That movie could have uh, that could movie could be in any sort of like <laughs> That movie could have been in fucking Bergman. <laughs>
2: Yeah, because when when the characters, especially Roy Scheider and anne Margaret, when they get angry in this movie, typically they really kind of go over the top. But you're right, in that scene it's held back a bit more. And, and I think her performance is really good. Otherwise in the film I didn't think she was very good, but she was extremely good in that scene. And I'm not sure why that one stands out compared to everything else, which is vastly different.
4: The other thing that I super dug about this movie is that it's a morality play where it's like, there's the scene again when Anne-Margaret gives the speech, the acceptance speech for um, getting getting the political position or, or running, being running mate for the DA or whatever public office job she's running for. And she gives this speech, which actually triggers Scheider's character to confess to her and, and, and start to figure out these problems rather than just putting them off. Um, so it's kind of a morality play. But... The main character doesn't take the moral path; he he takes the super vigilante path. I, I love that this movie, and I think it's very intentional. And I think again, that's Elmore Leonard not only wrote the novel this is based on; he wrote the screenplay as well, um, or co-wrote it. the The fact that it's so muddled in its messages, but in a delightful way—not muddled in like it's it's bad writing or it's confused about what it wants to be—it's clearly trying to be as gray as possible, saying that that, that, that people are, are going to do what what is important to get them out of their shit. And it doesn't really matter about anyone else or authenticity or whatever. I, I, and yet it, it throws that one scene where he's like, oh my God, my wife's running for this position and I'm not totally doing it to save her ass. I kind of like her speech about, no lies and doing the right thing mm-hmm. and, and it's time to come clean. And, and I, I think f- how many movies have that level of complexity to where it's kind of, usually a movie just says, okay, we're about this and we're just going to straight line it. Whereas this movie, it takes lots of these like adult-driven detours, which are great, really great.
0: I think that political context is like um, highlighted even more in the other film that this novel was based on. What's interesting is that there's. Uh, I read that this movie, um, well, the, the the book that this movie is based on was actually adapted into another movie two years prior called The Ambassador, which I never seen, but it stars like Robert Mitchum and Rock Hudson and Ellen Burstyn.
4: Yeah, but <laughs> that, but that movie it's like a foreign affairs story, right? It's not. Yeah, a, it's that's not. That's what I read. Mm-hmm. And and the novel is a, a Detroit. Like so, they even you know none of the none of the adaptations are exactly what the novel are, um, and and I find it, it. Elmore Leonard's novels they all feel like movies when you're reading them. Oh you, yeah. Even more than any author, when you're reading one of his books, they, they like you can see the movie playing. Totally. But when they when they adapt them into films, they often make, they keep the essence of the book, but they often make changes. Like uh, Quentin Tarantino changed. Uh, Jackie Brown from a, a white woman to a black woman, uh, and then built the film like a like a exploitation film, uh, but it still preserved all of that down and out quality, particularly of Ordell and 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 Lewis mm-hmm. and, and and so forth, and 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 uh, Jackie Brown herself and Robert Forster, uh, and and I find this movie totally gets it, like <laughs> the fact that. You think Roy Schneider's just an asshole, and he's he's cheating on his wife, and he is, but the fact that he's he feels like he has money and he's got all this thing, but he doesn't really The fact that the movie stops at one point, not only does it make the porn dude a part time accountant, which I think is funny on so many levels, and they have a whole scene in the movie um and this is the eighties we're well past the seventies where movies would really take their time like we're well past the point where directors just blast ahead with their plots and pacing. And yet this movie stops to have John Glover take a good four or five minutes to look through his tax returns (laughs) (laughs) to say that he's got no money, like that he's got $52,000, hence the title of the film, um, in liquid cash that he can pay them for their really random scheme. Like it's kind of like, um, like the Big Lebowski or whatever, where they've almost picked a name out of the phone book in order to rob someone. Um, like they, they, there's not a lot of motivation for these guys other than the fact that they think this guy is wealthy.
2: So you mentioned Elmer Leonard again. I mean, that was one of the things that I didn't pick up on during the movie at all. That it was an Elmer Leonard, uh, you know, novel or screenplay. I mean, I think there are little pieces here and there. Looking back, that. Oh, okay, I see, I can see that fitting into the rest of uh, you know the, the screenplays I've I've seen by him. I didn't get that feeling though. I mean, do you think this was was it watered down? Was
4: it just no, not at all. Not at all. Story? This is, but I, I just didn't get that so feeling so much. Out. This has the way he writes like Anne Margaret's character feels so much like a woman in an Elmore Leonard novel, and Roy Scheider's character because all of the Leonard. Uh, Elmore Leonard novels have like a main character that's kind of on his second wind. His characters are never young. They're always Mm -hmm. older. They've been around the block. They're, they're not characters you ever like and you would never associate with them in real life ever. But when you watch them in his books, you're like, yeah, I totally want to know what this guy's going to do. And uh, to me, Roy Scheider's character fits the mold so accurately. Like this to me felt Far more like a Elmore Leonard adaptation than it did a John Frankenheimer film. That being
2: said, more from a dialogue perspective, there there wasn't as many of the uh, I don't want to say zingers, but you know the, well, the kind of, uh, everything John Glover says is a zinger. And for Glover, and again, for Glover, yes, that, that, that's yeah. a good point. But uh, otherwise, I didn't get as much out of it from that point of view. But I'll, but you know, I don't know Leonard that well from his novels. I'm just comparing to some of the other films I've seen.
4: And if you read Pink Flamingos or um, Get Shorty, ones that have very specific film bents in them, you'll realize the way that John Glover talks, again, with his obsession with shooting the porn films, feels very much in the spirit of Elmore Leonard's... Elmore Leonard Barry's film craft and criticism of craft inside of how the characters talk about movies in a lot of his books. And I think that that's very much on display with the Glover character here. I, I mean, there's a great line. This is the ultimate, um, uh, Elmore-lettered line, and I, oh, I know I'm going to screw it up, but when Roy Scheider is like, he's got the type of face that just makes you want to punch him. Like there's, no, like, there's
0: something about your face that makes <laughs> you want to slap the shit out of it. That is the that line. Is, thank you. Yeah, and
2: I'm that, definitely going to be saying
0: that when I get angry with people now. <laughs> okay, That's fair, fair <laughs> one thing I want to take away from this movie.
3: <laughs> so is his accent part of that, too? Because I could not figure out what kind of accent he was trying to do. John Glover.
4: Oh, he he mm. feels like kind of failed English prep school. Yeah. Um,
3: yeah, it was with... like English sometimes, and like Brooklyn sometimes, and like L.A. sleazeball sometimes, and it was really weird.
1: It felt yeah, like, I... like a Detroit accent almost, if there is such a thing. Just he kept calling everybody sport or slick. <laughs> that,
2: that of, Every time he called Roy Scheider a sport, I loved.
1: Oh yeah. yeah, loved it. I, you know, I love the scene in up in the projection booth where they're sort of—he's not willing to admit he's the guy that's been blackmailing him, but at the same time, he's making it really clear that he is the guy that's blackma blackmailing him, or not really. Like it—that's an interesting scene from Roy Scheider's perspective like he's got to be pretty sure that well, this is the guy he's supposed to be giving money to without ever meeting him like i really like how that scene kind of plays out and even by the time he walks out i don't think he like he never said john glover's character never really says um, that he's the guy. He just keeps saying, "Well, well, you seem to think I am. If you want to give me ten grand, I, I'm the guy." Uh, I don't know. I I just really like that scene, and it's shot really well with the um, with the projectors turning all the time and the light mm-hmm. coming yeah. through the reels. Um, Even better on that scene is
4: that. The point where John Glover does the real change is the exact point in the movie where Roy Scheider takes charge and goes on around, like go, actually own instead of becoming the victim, becomes the aggressor. It's a beautiful, yeah. like, little visual flourish in the middle of this
1: movie. Um, I like how Roy Scheider seems to be able to deal with each of the three characters in the way that all three of them need to be dealt with he needs to be fast talking and slick with the glover character um, with uh... i can't remember the black guys name you mentioned it before Bobby shy every time he's with him he's gotta be just sort of physically menacing he's got to appear to be physically menacing and whenever he's with the leo character that scene in the bar he is just kind of looking on to Leo as though he's just pathetic, or you're, I'm just tired of dealing with you, or you're so stupid, you're not even really worth my time. Um, I like the way, but you are Johnny on the spot with these images, Bob. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I just like the way that he gets to spend time a one-on-one scene with each villain one at a time. Um, And like the driver, there are basically three main villains. Right. um, And he's dealing with. And in the driver, uh, O'Neill's character meets up with the one guy on his his balcony or whatever. But here, Roy Scheider makes it a point, or the the screenwriter or the novelist makes it a point where he gets to spend a one-on-one moment of at least a few minutes with each guy. And I love that. Before we move on, that bar scene
4: um, with uh, Robert Trebor is that bar in like a freight train car? Like, it, was it a bar or was it like like a, const- a mobile construction house? Like, it just, I don't know if you remember the scene when he walks in. Like, it feels like that, that bar is like an abandoned.
1: It's almost literally a hole in the wall.
4: Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's like in the middle of an abandoned lot. It's just a great, mm-hmm. sparse. It's it's like almost like a western when he walks into that bar. Yeah, yeah,
1: yep, yeah, absolutely. It's like a wall with a door. <laughs> there's like some bar. <laughs> yeah. I also
2: like the how again, sort of comparing to the driver where there's, again, more driving inside of warehouses. Apparently, it's very easy to just drive into warehouses (laughs) in Los Angeles uh, 30, 40 years ago. Um, So I I like that kind of contrasting point, too.
3: Driving back out is a different story.
4: Yes. (laughs) Well, I guess that should bring us to uh, Vanity, the the prostitute character that, um, I guess, gets... She's kinda like the mentor of Kelly Preston who is the mistress, um, who gets like the Saw treatment many years before Saw came along. Doesn't that didn't that be, before I get to Vanity, didn't Kelly Preston's framing for murder feel like a scene out of Saw? Yeah, maybe, now that you mention it slightly, yeah. Maybe, yeah. Maybe it's kind of weird. Um that this is like twenty years before that movie. Um but the vanity character in a, in a procedural film, you know, the main character has to go around and get information, and that's kind of what Roy Scheider is in the middle section of this movie. Um, but the way he gets the information from the vanity character is, it's just, it's in there just to up the skin quotient of this movie. Like, it, there's no surprise whatsoever that um, this has the canon group, the Golden Globus Um, oh yeah in print which is funny when when you think of the when you think when i think of golden globus movies i think of like bad chuck norris action movies delta force exactly and movies that were basically idiotic shoot-em-ups with whatever this movie totally busts that mold like clearly this was the best canon group movie ever made even though it doesn't resemble any of those i don't know why frankenheimer got money from those guys um to make this movie but then when you get a scene like vanity stripping just for the sake of you know that that i'm curious if that's in the 52 pickup novel or whether it is a um whether it's those two Israeli producer guys going, there's got to be more tits in this movie. Put some more We, it. It's been so long since the porn stars have another scene where someone strips and then so they, they have her do her thing.
3: Have, have you guys seen a movie called, um, model shop? It's actually a movie that Jack, uh, Jacques Demi did in the U S
2: yeah, I've, so I've seen so that. Much much Andy, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. not one of my favorite Demi films, but, uh,
3: well, no, it wouldn't be. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's an interesting tour of LA as well, for sure. Yeah.
3: But it um well the model shop in it, the the um the scene that we're talking about now where he goes in and um it's like you know, you pay to rent a camera and you can photograph the girls as they undress. Like that's basically hmm. what model shop is. Like that's where the girl works in it. I don't know well, if this is like a common thing in LA that to have these well,
4: well, you're ridiculous. the one you're the one in LA jen well, uh, they aren't
3: now but it's on the internet now
4: <laughs> but it is funny though cuz doesn't kelly preston describe her character as a model and then it cuts away <laughs> to the fact that she's like a the stripper study, yeah. lowest bottom like she's not even a stripper she's like a a nudie booth Girl. Oh yeah. 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 I,
3: mean, like I don't is. know. If that's like an actual reference to the the Demi film. Probably not, but or if it was just a common thing. If it the was time.
4: just a thing in the '70s, '80s, Los Angeles.
2: But I'm starting to think more highly of the film the more connections you guys are making here. But two two things that kind of drove me a little bit crazy about it was uh, one was the the soundtrack. Uh, I mean, yeah, Harry, yeah, it's yeah. You the can't best. help it, but. That, I mean, there's I one scene where Schindler's walking up to a garage and they think it is Jaguar to bring his Jaguar yeah. garage, and the music's like da 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 da. da. <laughs> Nothing happens. It, it's, no, it's it's not that. That's,
4: that's not the, that's not the issue, Bob. The issue is actually the opening shot. Like you cannot get a more 80s music in an 80s movie than the. You know, I think it's him getting it out of a yeah. pool, and yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, oh yeah. my yeah. god, yeah. Yeah. we are. Undoubtedly <laughs> suffocating. I'll but, stick. With, I'll stick
0: with yeah. "To Live and Die in L.A." My friend. Well, well, <laughs> and it's
4: funny because a lot of the the stuff. If 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 I if you saw the if you saw that this was directed by William Friedkin, you would you would not bat an eye because yeah. when you think of Killer Joe and "To Live and Die in L.A." Um, uh, I mean, even parts of The Exorcist, uh, Friedkin is is and bug uh, is no. Stranger to the kind of sleaze that's on display. Uh, if cruising is that, is that Friedkin as well? Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, but there's something about 52 Pickup when like Scorsese and Friedkin and these guys were doing like the sleazy Hollywood New Wave stuff in the 70s, and you get that like even Paul Schrader's Hardcore uh, with George C. Scott, which oh yeah, awesome. Um, they have that New York level of like Times Square, Crime, Prostitution, um, Midnight Cowboys, another one. Um, but there's something about the L.A. sleaze of the 80s with the new wave jackets and the and the sort of plastic silicone women that to me is far more sleazy than the scuzzy 70s. Like, the, the, there's something about the 80s. When you see um, Isabella Rossellini and... Dennis Hopper in Blue Velvet. To me, that's even more sleazy, or or, or, or um, Dean Stockwell singing with the with the with the light fixture. There's something that is just more purely weird about. Um, the same with uh, Tony Scott's The Hunger. And and I think 52 Pickup is Frankenheimer's real ode. I mean, I I, I don't know if Dead Bang is is in the 80s or if it, it was starting to push into the 90s, but. This is a great ode to just how gross the '80s, and it would make a great double bill with "To Live and Die in L.A." Mm-hmm.
2: Oh and, yeah,
4: and, and and it's funny because it had that movie's got the car chases in it, which you'd think the Frankenheimer film would have, because Frankenheimer does great car chases too.
2: He does film that Jaguar really nicely. Is though. it a Jaguar? I <laughs> thought it was a Porsche. Sun, I think I think it's a Jaguar. When the sun's going down, he's driving. Yeah. That
4: oh way, yeah. Right? Well, that's, this is that was crazy. his. And, and if you listen to the soundtrack, it's just like his other car movies where he's gone in with the Foley guys and filmed the actual car noises. But it has it's, – it's weirdly placed. It's another one of those, well, what exactly type of movie is 52 Pickup? Because that scene is so at odds with the rest of the movie, fetishizing the car mm-hmm. that, like when he's supposed to be off – contemplating the dissolution of his marriage. It's like fucking cool car and I'm going to drive and it's, it sounds great and power and, 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 and whatever. Um, yeah. Um, also, uh, anyways, sorry, I'll, I'll let someone else talk.
2: Well, you know, I was just going to say like your, your point about the music at the start of the movie, I think fit with that sleazy tone you're going for. But, um, later on in the movie, it, it, it just, I think it, it it, it, that's the second point that I don't really like about the film is that it, it helps strip the tension from the movie. With The Driver, I think it really kind of built the tension very nicely and consistently. Yeah. In 52 Pickup, it reached a point where, as much as I was enjoying the film and the sleeves and all that, I didn't really care what happened, whether Shada got out of it or not, because I felt the, the tension was stripped, partially because of music, partially because of just the way that the film was pieced together. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where it sort of falls down for me. Um, but I, I got to bring back a lot of the stuff you guys said to it. I, I might actually revisit it at some point.
4: Oh, come on. You got to, when, when John Glover has to drive around LA to buy heroin so that he can inject Anne-Margaret with heroin to shut her up. Like that, what the hell? Like, how did we get to that point? I, the movie had me there. I'm like, I'll go wherever you're going. Like, um, and then when you find out later that Glenn Kenny the, uh, uh, Great, great film critic. One of my favorite film critics. He he actually has a whole post on all the background players in this movie. Like, he names all the porn stars that are here. But the guy who sells the drugs to John Glover so he can inject Anne margaret um, is the lead singers from uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Dad. Really? <laughs> oh, weird. Weird, random shit like that. And And this movie has that. This movie... Like it might feel like a like a Canon Group one off where they just said like like, like let's just film that, film that. There's so much authentic stuff, like actual LA stuff in this movie. It makes it a far more interesting document. In a way, that porn star sequence in it is. As authentic, probably more authentic than P.T. Anderson's *Boogie Nights*. Like it, it, it feels a lot more real. Whereas P.T. Anderson has clearly got the story he wants to tell, but the, in a way, *52 Pickup* is this weird document of that particular time and place in L.A., and it's just populated with Elmore Leonard characters just for fun. And and I think, I think that's overlooked when. People go, ah, it's middle tier, or like you said, compared to his run in the '60s, you're like, how did he get to be making these kind of things, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know, I, I, I dig it, I dig and this plot movie. It's well. plot-wise and character-wise, it's just so simple. And no, just... it's not simple. I think it's really, I think it, it I don't think it's simple. I think I'm it's, it's standard. actually very pure in the way it tells the story. It, it, you always know what's going on in this movie, and it's, it's, it's very clean considering. If you count the number of characters and shit that's going on in this movie, it's a very cleanly told story And in, in I guess the same way that the driver is no nonsense, this movie does find a way to just use great storytelling and editing to tell the story like it, it's I, I feel a lot of modern films have lost this ability to just give a straight up extremely well constructed thriller. And and, and, and you know, while this movie isn't aiming to be, you know, a movie that everyone walks away with and go, yeah, best thing ever, it is very pure in its execution in the same way that The Driver is.
0: I would agree with that. I mean, you know, again, we mentioned Walter Hill. That's a guy who just, he just makes really tight economical, you know, action thrillers. And um, I felt myself a little bit more restless in this movie, although, I mean, I was never bored. I was certainly... Interested to see where the story was going to take me. And, you know, you got villains like this, of course, you're going to be compelled to watch them, you know, be as sleazy as they can be. And, you know, it's, it's still pretty jarring to see. I mean, even in light of something like the Saw movies, it's still pretty jarring to see any snuff film presented in a movie. uh... You know, even yeah, I'm still disturbed for many reasons, like watching something like Videodrome and still seeing that take place. And uh, you know, I, I still think it's—you're you're right. It is—it's—it's—it's it's, it's very economical and very—I uh, think it's very faithful, more than anything, to Elmore Leonard. And I think he even thought so at the time when this movie came out. However, I'm pretty—I'm—I'm—if I'm, I'm, I'm going to rewatch another Elmore Leonard movie, it's going to be something like *Out of Sight* again, because I just think that's a little bit more fun, you know, and, and pleasurable. Uh, i mean there 's pleasure to have in this movie for sure in watching it, but it's just there are things about it you know um like Bob mentioned the score kind of it it called attention to itself in ways that I thought were kind of annoying <laughs> at times
4: well, where I give credit to fifty two pickup is that it's an, it's unlike Get Shorty and Jackie Brown and out of sight there's no sheen on this movie this movie mm-hmm. is is this movie is gutter through yeah. and through. And it's far more pure to the characters in a Leonard novel than those other filmmakers. Sure. No, no doubt, all those films are better, but this movie captures that ugly place okay. that Elmore Leonard manages to tell his crime stories from in a very compelling way. I'm, I wonder if the movie would have worked as well in Detroit, but all that L.A. shit that they packed into this movie uh, really... It, it gives it a, like I said, it gives it a time and place that a lot of these sort of genre thrillers don't get. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so... It, um,
0: definitely made, it definitely made me want to take a shower afterwards. So, <laughs>
2: absolutely. That's... And it does capture some of that noir feeling, too. I mean, the uh, I think you mentioned the scene in the, uh, uh, the projection booth the scene when he's forced to watch the, the video for the first time, and you get the light coming through the shutters. Like, it touches on a lot of the kind of uh, dark and light aspects there.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Only in some parts, but, I mean, there's, there's a nice feel that came out of some of those portions, which was, uh, which was kind of a nice add-on.
1: I love the, uh, within when you guys are talking about the snuff film, a couple things. Like, he utilizes ultra-slow motion. Like, it's almost like that killing them softly scene with the gun. Going really slow. And then when you see Kelly Preston being shot and her head is flopping back and forth and the hair and it's all done in slow motion. Um, yeah. that, goes, that goes back to sort of his filmmaking. Um, you know, he wants to be a filmmaker, he wants to be a serious filmmaker behind you know, deep down. And I love he uses and he, he keeps talking about how he uses multiple shots and whatnot in his snuff film. But why what as a kid why did they put the board over uh over her stomach before they shoot her is that so that they can show in the video that it wasn't special effects look they, those weren't squibs the bullets did actually go through i i thought when i was a kid that that was there for some reason in terms of adding more pain or helping the i don't know i thought that was just a weird little bit of hmm. When I watched the film,
4: I actually thought they faked the... I didn't think they would go so far as to kill this woman, that they actually... that the board was there to fake it, but uh,
1: clearly, by the end of
4: the movie, they, they um, there was no special effects. They were, they
2: were
1: so killing it. Is that her. the only reason the board is there? Is to show... Because he does hold it up to the light and say, look, the bullets went all the way through. Or is there some weird torture reason? Well, that, it,
4: it, it does give... Again, it gives that... More track, track mechanized soft feel, for lack of a better phrase. Um, by, I, and I think that's where this movie. It always goes the extra five details. Like it, it, it doesn't give John Glover a mirror up above his bed. It gives him a mirror with a fucking marquee above his bed. <laughs> <Like> that's <laughs> the movie just goes that extra mile visually. And and I think, um and I think maybe this is what it is. But there was a rash of films in the mid nineteen eighties. John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, uh, James Cameron's Aliens, um, that used video inside of film. And I wonder if that was just a hot thing to do in 1986. Because all of John Glover's, like his porn stuff with the live TVs and then the, the the ransom things, they do kind of really fetishize the what video looks like on film. Like it becomes this nice... Again, it, it, it just... Says sleaze when you when you're looking at shitty produced beta video stuff. You know what I mean? And and it it works. It totally aesthetically, it's brilliant in the movie. And and this is five or six years before Sex Lies and Videotape, where where they really go to town with it. But there was a whole bunch of movies in like the eighty six era that was that were using video inside of. Um,
0: oh yeah. Film. A couple of years later, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer came out, and that has one of the most terrifying. That's that's the movie that kind of messed me up when I saw it way too young. I shouldn't have seen that movie at like age nine or ten. Whenever I saw it,
2: <laughs> hey,
4: you could argue. I'm still uh, scared for 20. life. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that has the home invasion video sequence, and that is still traumatizing. That,
2: that is terrifying, yeah. yeah. The, uh, oh, the, talking... the video on screen is, is very much, it's time it's back to Frankenheimer using a lot of those frames and frames. Kind of like the, the image I just put up, where you've got the the guys with the masks in the mirror, you see Scheider, you've got the TV with Scheider on it as well. It, you had a reflection really of the TV. Action. Yeah, nice. Like that itself is a great shot. I really like that particular scene. Me too. Mm. And he does that a number of times in a film where you see the TV and you see characters on the TV while other characters are watching them. And he seems to come back to that quite a bit in his film.
0: Hmm.
1: Oh, yeah. There, there's a good shot that Jandy has where the reflection Jandy of uh, Roy Scheider. You know, oh, right, a, yeah, yeah. I was mm-hmm. looking at,
4: at, at, at uh, Kelly, Kelly Preston's assets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, there's framing going on?
1: <laughs> well, he's so it. talking about, like other films that this sort of reminds you of, I think a good companion piece to something like this, if you want to go a decade later, something like Basic Instinct. Now that's in San Francisco, but it's still got that level of sleaze, yet just slickness of characters over the top of it, even though everybody's kind of over the top. So yeah, yeah. it's that's the level of thriller that I feel like this is, Clearly, this is a little lower budget and... be more sliver than basic instinct, uh, <laughs>
4: but um,
1: definitely, es- definitely an Esther House style different. and sort of grit. I think. Well,
4: there was that awful Joe Schumacher movie from the mid '90s uh, with Nicolas Ain't Cage no and Walking no Phoenix. No. Yeah, yeah, which is also, um, yeah, horrible. It's a terrible movie, though. <laughs> it's atrocious. Uh, Fifty Two Pickup is a goddamn masterpiece compared to that. I, I don't know. I I, I guess. Um, it may be trash and it and and it, it may be middle of the pack Frankenheimer, but there's a lot of flavors in this movie. It's like a big gigantic submarine sandwich that you're like ah it's just gonna be cold cuts and lettuce and a little bit of mustard but you bite into it and all sorts of shit start falling out the side of this movie <laughs> I, I, I love it I, I just I, I can't help myself but there's this movie was made with a lot of care and detail and I, you, you do get the sense that Frankenheimer was pulling in a lot of weird favors. Um, maybe, maybe the Canon guys just didn't give him much money. And he, you know, he was a pretty big budget filmmaker, you know, for that era, not, not like star Wars kind of, you know, super budget, but he was, he was definitely like one of these A-list guys, like consistent performers, like the Sidney Lumet's and the, and, and the William Freakins and, and, and whatnot. And, uh, and it, I guess if he made this movie on the cheap, he's like, "Well, God damn it, I'm gonna location scout the fuck out of this movie and i'm gonna I'm gonna production I'm gonna fill up the frame with all sorts of great stuff and the movie's dense for all of its yeah. simple genre aspects I, I think there's just a lot a lot of pleasure um, and i I incredibly lament not to sound like an old fart, but i I incredibly lament the fact that modern films. Don't do this anymore. This type of film, maybe, maybe, maybe Jandy uh, nailed it in that the internet and and all the you you don't need a basic instinct or or a fifty-two pickup for that level of sleaze anymore because you could just watch five-minute segments on any porn website and and get 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 it instantly. And and the erotic thriller, not that this movie's an erotic thriller, but the erotic thriller died because of that. and uh, and even and uh, but even less than the erotic thriller, the, an actual thriller, just with lots of trashiness in it. They don't they don't make this type of movie anymore. And then you throw a scene like like the, their relationship meltdown in the middle, or even the scene when John Glover breaks into their house and just threatens her with this weird accounting pitch. Um, like I don't know, is there anyone making movies? In the twenty first century, that approximate or is this as dead as, um, you know, like the early pomas or the or the uh, screwball comedies or, or, or whatever? Like, is there no one? No one makes this type of movie anymore. So no, I mean, anyway, I don't think. No, I don't think so.
0: I mean, if it weren't a play first, I would say maybe Killer Joe is probably the closest thing. like yeah. I Mentioned earlier.
4: Yeah, which is free, Which is his contemporary, basically, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Killer Joe is exactly this this <laughs> movie. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough.
0: Maybe, well, I, agree. maybe I, I, I jump in the I, gun. I definitely agree that this is it. it Fifty Two Pickup is it's a pretty tasty sandwich, but there was, <laughs> there were some things about it that gave me acid reflux, like yeah, like, like, yeah. like the score. So
4: yeah, it's yeah. well, it's not healthy. It's not healthy food. <laughs> no, but, you know, I, I would rather again, I would rather eat this than go to the fucking McDonald's, which is what. Well, yeah, you know. Everything else is now. I, maybe we should just abandon this food metaphor. <laughs> it's dangerous. It's always dangerous, food metaphors and movie metaphors. One, uh,
2: one last negative aspect of the movie is that you have somebody like Doug McClure in your cast. and oh You barely use him.
4: Yeah. He looks so great on that sign.
2: And you know you don't use him. It's like,
4: oh, what a, what a lost opportunity. Who's the actor that plays uh, Roy Scheider's lawyer? because he was good too. He had very little screen time. Uh I recognize him I I can't think of his name.
2: Yeah.
1: It is rated R. It seems so nasty oh. that it shouldn't be NC-17. <laughs> I mean, there's no full frontal or anything, but I don't know. God, Yeah,
4: that's, that's the, the one thing this movie is absolutely missing is pubic hair. There's there is a distinct lack of pubic hair. This movie deserves pubic hair just to go with everything else.
0: Just cast it's- Gina Gershon. Right? Yeah, I know, <laughs>
4: I know, I know. Well, again, I, this could have been uh, even... Okay, I'm just mm-hmm. an asshole here. But um, this could have been, even though Anne-Margaret plays a very serious character, this could have been the opportunity for the world to see if the, the you know,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> this could have been her uh, Blake Edwards SOB uh, uh, kind of moment with, uh, with Frankenheimer. I, I shouldn't say that, though, because Margaret is – is seriously great in this movie. She she actually probably has the best. I mean, Glover is a lot of fun, and Scheider is super oily, but and Margaret is it gives a really great performance, considering that her character in the end gets used as like rescue bait. Um, up until that point, though, she's she's seriously great in this movie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All right, is that going to do it then for this episode? Any final thoughts?
4: Well, I think I'm good. Uh, the the title of the film, uh, is it 52 Pickup? Like, it, it, it's it's a great play on words. No one, no one mentioned the pun of the title. Um, a, it makes you think of a car, which is what, you know, like a mm-hmm. Frankenheimer. But but it's even more like it's the cards, right? You throw the oh, yeah. cards up in the air, which is the chaos of this idiot crime that they're performing and the fallout of everything. Um, and B, it's literally $52,000 that... John Glover is picking up at the, the movie's <laughs> exceptionally. so it's 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 like a three meaning, it's a three meaning title. Um, it's 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 actually a, and it's catchy. It's a really catchy title. I think this movie actually bombed when it came out, but you would think that people would go to see a movie called Fifty Two Pickup. It just sounds like a great title, anyway. That's my final final thought. A good, kudos to good titling of the films instead of these bullshit one-word titles that all films seem to have these days.
0: Yeah, if this were, if this were a Cinecast episode, you'd have to call it Sleazy and Slick. We use, those, we use right. those words a lot. for. This, and off the rails.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, if we were titling this, we'd call it Deserving of Pubic Hairs. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so normally the film junk guys are here and as Kurt mentioned, they were just way too busy with other stuff, so we'll plug them, check out their stuff. What we've decided on for the next episode sort of ties into a rivalry between row three and film junk. Um I think it started it started with the Mr. Nobody. Kurt and I have kind of a, an appreciation for that film, and those guys hate it.
2: Meh, I hate it too.
1: And Jim like <laughs> hates it. Bob, Jandy, have you guys seen the, the Mr. Nobody?
2: Yeah, I was actually in the theater when you saw it. it. Uh, Tiff yeah. I, I liked it. I liked it a lot, actually, even on second viewing, but I, I don't come anywhere near loving it like you and Kurt did. All right.
3: I have not seen it,
1: so I All can't right. So we're going to do some Mr. Nobody. Um, The other two films, we're actually going to have a a trifecta of films, the trilogy. So Mr. Nobody, um, and Kurt can explain how these all tie in, but we're also going to be talking about The Fountain, Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain, and also The Wachowski's Cloud Atlas. And I know there's Oh,
4: yeah. (laughs) That's going to be... Well, metaphysical love stories, I guess, if you have to tie them all together, they're and they're all told with multiple narratives um, and and sort of tangented universes and and, uh, connections across time and space. Um, Yeah, I mean, maybe the most on-the-nose pairing of films ever, but I I don't know. I've got a real soft spot for that, and I know that um, uh, every one of those films – rubs someone the wrong way in a very visceral way. <laughs> so it should be a, um, a very impolite episode.
1: <laughs> it won't take us another 10 months to, to get to it. Hopefully, No,
4: just, just apropos of the love stories at the center of all three of these films, uh, the goal would be to uh, publish the next one on Valentine's Day 2013. That's my reasonably attainable goal. Uh, I think so. Fingers crossed. So
1: So we'll see what kind of cast we get for that. Um, So just going around the table one more time, mention your name and uh, where we can find your stuff.
2: Uh, Bob Turnbull, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Logical Mind in row three. And thanks for having me, guys. It's a lot of fun.
1: You bet. Are you on Twitter anywhere?
2: Yeah, at, at the Logical Mind. There you go. Over to you, Jandy.
3: and I'm uh, Jandy, and uh, I would say you can find myself at Row 3 in the Frame, but I'm trying to ramp up my writing there. But uh, in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at uh, FaithX5.
0: And um, I'm over at DirectorsClubPodcast.com, and um, I guess you can also find me over at Twitter, at Instant Jim, and hopefully for next time I won't be as blurry as Robin Williams in Deconstructing Harry. So thanks again, you guys. It's an absolute pleasure to be here again.
4: And you can find me on the Twitter at Triflic, T-R-I-F-L-I-C. Um, you can also find me lurking around Row3 and TwitchFilm.net. Sweet.
1: And I am Andrew James from Row3.com. My Twitter is at Andrew underscore James, and you can find us at Row3 on the Twitter. So thanks, everybody, so much for viewing, listening, watching, streaming, whatever uh, this episode of the Movie Club podcast. will be back in a couple months, hopefully, with Cloud Atlas, Mr. Nobody, and The Fountain. So check us out. Leave some comments on the uh, on the site, and we'll be back next time. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.
4: Thanks, it's huge, guys, for uh, for joining us on this. It was uh, short notice for some of you, but uh, oh, no. it, was, it, was, no, it was... great. They're fun movies to talk about.
2: I, I'm actually almost itching to see 52 pick up again. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> again. And... It's always the tricky part with the movie club podcast is do you go into the Antonioni Hitchcock like where you can have these ridiculously detailed academic discussions of the movie? Or do you go just for the complete sleazy, trashy, fun genre stuff? I I don't really ever know what the balance you is. You can't lose either way. Mm-hmm. I suppose my, my fear with this one and, and I, I'm thankful that it did that it didn't come to pass was that there might not be all that much to talk about with these movies because um, because of the you know they don't have a lot of subtext to them but I guess there's a lot of aesthetic pleasures about